Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Good morning, everybody. Let's all start with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for the breath of life that aroused us all from our beds this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here, to learn, to hear, and to meditate on your word. As always, Holy Spirit, we profess our total and utter dependence upon you, knowing and realizing that your word is not something naturally discerned, but spiritually received. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be with us, to open our hearts, to open our eyes, and to open our minds as your award will now abide in us and have a meaningful impact for decades to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So today we're going to continue our series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, and today's topic is going to be on the wisdom literature. Now when I say wisdom literature, I'm talking about five specific books in the Bible. It's going to be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Now the focus of this five books is basically the love of wisdom. And when the Bible talks about wisdom, it's not talking about wisdom in the same sense the world talks about it. When the world talks about wisdom, they generally talk about someone who just knows a lot of stuff, who's been through a lot of stuff, or they have a lot of facts. But when the Bible talks about wisdom, it talks about ultimate knowledge that begins with God. That knowledge is then received and imparted to an individual. And now that that person has all of the facts, the wisdom gives them the ability to know what to do with those facts. So it's almost as if an individual is navigating a map of life and what wisdom does, it's a compass that steers them and guides them and tells them this is what is good, this is what is of God, this is what is not good, and this is what you should stay away from. Solomon, who was the wisest individual in the history of the entire Bible, he had a unique ability of discernment, to discern between good and evil. So all that knowledge God gave him equipped him with the ability to know between right and wrong. So the big idea, taking all of these five books as a whole, the big idea of the wisdom literature is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now when I say the fear of the Lord, it doesn't mean we like little children in a corner afraid of smart daddy God. That's not what that means. The fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom means a person who is wise understands if they try to navigate a course of life independent of God, ultimately it will end in destruction and ultimately all is for naught. So there's a fear now of trying to live life independently of life's creator and author who is God himself. 
So five books, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those are the wisdom books. Those first three books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, those are going to be the poetic books. So this is a subdivision of the wisdom books. Now when I say those books are in the form of Hebrew poetry, I'm talking about their form, not their content. Meaning, when we in modern day America think of poetry, we think of roses are red, violets are blue, you are so beautiful, I love you, right? That's a lovely poem. It's something figurative, it's something imaginative, it's something that tells a story. When I say these three books are Hebrew poetry, I don't mean they're telling a fictional story. I mean, they're still the inerrant truth of God, but they're told in the form or the means by which God's truth is conveyed is in the form of poetry. Now, everyone should write this down. Because the key structure of the Hebrew poetic books uses something called parallelism. P-A-R-A-L-L-E-L-I-S-M. Parallelism. Now, parallelism is a tongue twister. And the reason why I want to make sure the church knows what parallelism is, is while this is used heavily in the three poetic books, in the entire Hebrew Bible, from Genesis through Malachi, you see the use of parallelism. So if you know what parallelism is, you can now actually read, interpret, and understand what the Hebrew Bible means. So the primary use of parallelism, it's a way of conveying meaning in Hebrew poetry. So what is parallelism? Parallelism is a way of writing so that there are two or more segments. You have segment one, and you have segment two. And both segments as a whole communicate an idea. So when reading parallelism, you can't interpret one segment out of context of the other because parallel one plus parallel two equals a complete thought. So if you only look at one segment, if you only look at one parallel, you're not getting the complete Picture. And as I said, it's important to know what parallelism is and recognize it because once you know what it is, you can begin to see it in the rest of the entire Hebrew Bible. So, there are going to be three different types of parallelism. The first type of parallelism is synonymous parallelism, which means that the second half the second parallel expresses the same idea as the first. In plain English, synonymous parallelism means God says the same thing twice using different words. And I'm going to give you a little personal anecdote because as a medical doctor, more than a decade of experience tells me I could be in a room and tell the same patient the same thing 30 different times. And that person comes out of the room and the first question they ask the medical assistant is, what did the doctor just say? In my personal opinion, God uses synonymous parallelism by saying the same thing in different words so we get the idea. He basically conveys the same idea in two different ways. I'm going to give you an example. 
Psalm 49.1 says, Hear this, O peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Psalm 49.1. So what's the first line of that verse? It says, Hear this, all peoples. What does that mean? Hey world, listen up. What's the next thing the text says? Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. What does that mean? Hey world, listen up. It's the same thing expressed in a different way. And that now serves as an introduction to all of Psalm 49. And God is saying, hey world, what I'm about to say is important. And what does Psalm 49 talk about? The folly of riches. When no matter how much money you have, you can't take it with you. And that cannot save your soul. So that's the first type, synonymous parallelism. The second type is antithetic parallelism, which means the truth in the first parallel is strengthened by the opposite in the second, which means the writer says one thing and then says the opposite in the second, and the complete picture now forms a whole. Example, Proverbs 13.9, that says... The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. Which tells us, in completeness, not only does righteousness impart light, illumination, guidance, but wickedness dampens and stamps out that same light. You have two contrasts, two things that are antithetical to one another. So that's the second type, antithetic Parallelism. The last type is synthetic parallelism, which means the second clause develops the thought of the first, and something new is added in the second clause that builds upon the big idea, meaning you have part one and part two, and part two expands upon part one to give you a complete whole. I'm going to give you an example. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence. Well, why should we do that? Why should we watch over our heart with all diligence? The next clause tells us, For from it flow the springs of life. The second clause now builds upon the first. So those three types of parallelism are crucial. Synonymous, antithetic, and synthetic. And I want you to keep that in your your notes because when we move on to the prophets next month, especially in the book of Isaiah, we're going to talk about parallelism and that's actually going to help us navigate some of the Old Testament's more difficult or what we call hard sayings. Okay. So that's going to give you a guide to the wisdom literature as a whole, particularly the poetic books. So now we're going to the books themselves. So the first book we're going to talk about is the book of Job. Now someone please tell me, in a couple of words, what is the big idea of the book of Job? Suffering does play a big part in the book of Job. And if you ask most most theologians or Bible teachers, what is the big idea of the book of Job? They will say suffering. They'll say uh, why the righteous suffer, the sovereignty and the justice of God. Here's the statement I'm going to make. The big idea of the book of Job is repentance. The big idea of the book of Job is repentance. I'm going to validate this claim. In Job, you have Job. 
He is the best example. He is the most righteous individual in the entire Old Testament. On three separate occasions, he's called blameless and upright. And what God does in the book of Job is he takes the best example of a person and basically shows us even Job needed to repent. So if even Job needed to repent, what does that say about me? What does that say about you? What does that say about everyone else who doesn't compare to Job? So let's validate his claim. Job is someone who we think lived around the time of the patriarchs in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, roughly speaking. Job was a man who was blameless and upright. The Bible says that three separate times. He was wealthy, he had land, he was pious, he was devoted to God. And then one day the devil says, God, let me at Job. Because if I attack him, if I strike him, if I tear him down, he will curse you to your face. And God permissively allows his heads of, hedge of protection to be removed from Job. The devil then uses human agents to kill his family, to take his livestock, to inflict diseases upon him. Job is broken. He is in the bottom of a black pit, and he cries out to God, but God is silent. He's hurting. And when God is silent, unfortunately, three of his friends fill in the silence gap. And these three friends end up giving him bad advice. Job then, on the height of his, of his pain, Job lashes out some scathing critiques of God and lashes out at him. Then, in Job chapter 31, Job spends the entire chapter, after all of this heartache and pain, he spends the entire chapter justifying himself. And he basically calls out and says, look at me, look at what I have done. I'm a good guy. I was obedient. I did everything right. And Job attempted to make a case for himself in the eyes of God. The next chapter now, Job 32, even his friends who are giving him bad advice, what does the text say? It says, then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then after the silence is over, God now responds, and he says, 38.2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 42. Will the fault finder, God talking about Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. 48. Will you, Job, really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Then at the end of Job now, when Job finally sees God, what does Job do? He repents. And as soon as Job repents, what happens? Job is over. Job repents, and 10 or 15 verses later, the book of Job is finished. Because, this is what Job says in 42, 5 to 6. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job may have heard the word of God, but he didn't see God. He didn't actually appreciate who God was. And in Job actually seeing God, he now saw himself. And in seeing himself in the context of God, he realized no matter how good anybody thinks they are in the eyes of a holy and a just God, we are all sinners that need to repent. And Job tried to justify himself in the face of God. What Job did not have was an advocate. He didn't have a defense attorney in the courtroom of the Most High who could advocate for him. So that absence, which is implicit in Job, points forward to what? Someone righteous who can justify us, who can vouch for us in the counsel of God himself, which points forward to who? Jesus Christ. And in God stripping Job of everything, I'm going to make a bold claim now. The book of Job isn't really about suffering per se. It's about God saving Job from a false system of religion. Let me explain this. In the beginning of Job, Job was comfortable. When God breaks Job down to pieces, when he shatters him, and Job now has nothing else, Job now results to what's really on the inside. And what was really on the inside wasn't Job trusting in God, it was trusting in himself. And, God, and when Job now justifies himself, God is revealing to Job, Job, this is what's truly, when you take everything away, when you take the family, the support, the riches away, this is what's lurking in the depths of your soul. So when Job now repents, he was repenting of his mistrust of God. And now at the end of Job, where is Job? Throughout the entire book of Job, God was silent. During his suffering, God was silent. At the end of Job, where is Job? Having a direct, intimate conversation with God himself, which tells us at the end of all the suffering, Job is now the closest to God that he ever was in the entire book. God rescued Job from himself to bring him closer to God Almighty. So the big idea of the book of Job is repentance. Now, the other sub-theme upon that is also the idea of suffering. And this is a topic that is too good to leave alone because the book of Job is going to give us seven key insights into the question, why suffering? So, The first thing that Job tells us about suffering is this. When we suffer, we don't have all the facts. When we suffer, we don't have all the facts. Here's a reality. Do you know who didn't have the book of Job when he was suffering? Job didn't. Job wasn't aware of all of the spiritual reality surrounding his scenario. All Job could see 
were those individuals in his immediate environment who were harming him, all the physical illnesses he was enduring. But Job didn't know about God actually saying that Job is upright and blameless. Job didn't know about Satan imploring God to torment Job. Job didn't know about the deceiver behind all of these natural catastrophes that sought to break him into pieces. Job didn't understand why he was suffering, and when we suffer now, symbolically speaking, we're like Job. All we can see are the natural events around us, but Job tells us there are spiritual realities bigger surrounding our entire a situation that we cannot see. So the first thing that Job tells about suffering is that when we suffer, we, don't, we are not equipped with all of the facts. The second thing Job teaches us is this. It teaches us the idea of concurrence, meaning even when the evil actions of others, even when they do what is outside of God's will, there is still a concurrence with God's will so that when other people work evil, in the end, in the grand scheme of things, there is a global alignment with God's will and it works out for good for those who trust in and rely on God himself. While those natural agents in Job, they murdered his family, they took his livestock, and they robbed him of all these natural resources. They were doing evil. They were clearly and blatantly doing what was outside of God's will. But when we take a step back and look at the grand arc of the story and see where everything ended up, they doing evil actually served God's grand purposes, who was in control of the entire situation from start to finish. The third thing Job teaches us about suffering is that we suffer for the glory of God. That may be something difficult to appreciate when we are suffering, but ultimately the purpose of suffering is for the glory of God because God is the one for those who profess faith in him who permissively allows the suffering to happen. He's the one who nurtures and carries people while they are suffering and he also makes sure that we don't grow through more than what we can bear. And at the end of the suffering, there's always a lesson. There's always, just like Job, us being drawn closer to God that would not have happened had we not suffered. Suffering happens for the glory of God. Fourth thing we learn about suffering in Job. Ultimately, the cause of all suffering, the, the primary causal root of all suffering in the world, in the history of humankind, is sin. If we lived in a world without sin, there would be no suffering. In the Garden of Eden, there was no suffering. In heaven, there is no suffering because there is no sin. Sin warps hearts, sin warps minds, sin warps bodies, sin warps DNA, sin warps your predilections towards getting certain diseases. It has its root cause in sin. But this is what Job tells us. That suffering isn't a formula, meaning can't put sin into an equation and therefore know precisely how much suffering you're going to have. It's not one plus one equals two. 
because there are some people like Job who sin a little bit and suffer a whole lot. There are also some people who sin a whole lot and suffer nothing. Perfect example, Jesus Christ. He was without sin, and he had the most barbaric, heinous suffering on the face of the planet, the crucifixion. So the root cause of all sin, of suffering, is sin, but it's not formulaic, meaning not everyone suffers in direct proportion to their sin. Fifth thing Job teaches about suffering is that when you profess faith in Jesus Christ, when you serve God, suffering is not for nothing. Suffering is never for nothing. Suffering in the end always has a purpose, always has an intent, always in some way, shape, or form glorifies God. And the neatest example of this is in who? Jesus. Someone could have looked at him on the cross suffering, saying, look at this man. He called himself and labeled himself the Son of God. Now look at him. Now he's dying a criminal's death, being crucified in the center where only enemies of the state die. Someone could have looked at the cross and said, his life was for nothing. His ministry was for nothing. But what did God show us? That that suffering that the world regarded as Christ's greatest defeat in actuality was the day the revolution began when sin was forever abolished and the cross set Jesus up to be raised from the dead, opening up the doors for all those who profess faith in him to be reconciled with God. So that's number five. The sixth thing Job teaches about suffering is this, that there's a link between the devil and suffering. The devil does not explain all suffering, but Job teaches us there's a link between the deceiver and suffering. Again, Job didn't have all the facts in his book. He didn't see Satan requesting to torment him. He didn't see Satan actually using natural instruments to murder his family members and to destroy his livelihood. What Job does tell us, though, is there a spiritual reality that explains partly some degrees of suffering. And Satan made a mistake in Job. Because Satan actually expressed his intent. He said, I want to make Job suffer so that he will turn away from God and curse him. Now you tell me, has Satan's plan ever worked before? Because there are some individuals who go through suffering who may raise an angry fist at God, but in reality, they're raising their angry fist at the wrong focus. When in reality, the person who's behind their natural events is the deceiver, and that's exactly what he wants. He's the one causing the pain, but he wants the person to put all the blame on God himself, turn away from him and say, God, I don't like you. God, I hate you. So the sixth thing Job teaches us is that there's a link between Satan and suffering. The last thing Job teaches about suffering is that silence does not equal absence. Although God may be silent, that does not mean he's absent. And although the benefit that we have compared to Job is that Job didn't have a Bible. He did not have a complete Genesis through Revelation. We do. 
So although Job didn't hear directly from God, whenever we endure suffering, God is never silent. You know why? Because he has spoken to us in his word. And God revealing to us in Job that although he may not have spoken a word to Job directly, his hand of providence was directing and organizing all events the entire time. So when you suffer, when you go through trials and tribulations, you may think God is absent because of his silence. But silence does not equal absence. So the big idea of the book of Job is repentance, a sub-theme is suffering, and ultimately, what does Job point us toward? Jesus. Because in Job, what do we have? What's the basic idea? You have someone who was righteous, who suffered for what seemed to be no reason, but ultimately, in the end, we now realize that suffering wasn't for nothing. That's Job. Next book, Psalms. The big idea of the book of Psalms is praise. The title in Hebrew that we get our English word praise from, it means praise. And therefore, Psalm is now the book of worship. Psalm has been called the hymn book for the temple that once stood in the promised land in Jerusalem. And the key word in the book of Psalms is hallelujah, which means Praise the Lord. This is the book that animates our praise, and it's also the book that animates our prayers. And what Psalm now does is, this is God's revelation to us. God gives us his words, which he now equips us with, and now we can use those words and communicate back to God, either in worship or in prayer. If you or I were to meet the Queen of England we wouldn't know what to say because we are in the presence of royalty. There are certain things we wouldn't say. There are certain things we would say. There are certain mannerisms or gestures we would or would not make because you're in the presence of someone who is particular, who is unique. So if anyone begins their prayer life and doesn't know what to say, then you are being honest because no one can just spontaneously know how to speak to a holy God. What Psalms now do is it actually gives us the words that we can use to animate our prayers. And my personal suggestion is that for anyone looking on how to learn how to pray, what we should all be doing is reading one Psalms each and every morning as we pray. Because over time, as you go through all 150 over and over and over again, the language from the Psalms will now be imprinted on your brain. So the Psalms are now in you. So now after a while and experience, you know exactly and precisely how to speak to God. The Psalms records the totality of the human experience. There's sadness, there's anger, there's pain, there's loneliness, there's depression, there's exaltation, there's joy. If you look at a commercial late at night, it'll say, are you feeling sad? And the commercial will say, you shouldn't feel sad ever. Here's a pill, take it and numb the pain. The commercial tells you, you shouldn't be emotional, you shouldn't have up and downs. Do you know what the psalm tells us? The psalm tells us there are some times you should be sad. 
There are some times you should be angry. There are some times you are going to feel alone. And what the Psalms now do is they give us the words, they give us the channel by which we can express that emotion and have an emotional outlet to express ourselves. God created emotional human beings for a reason, and God is now validating the emotionality of the human experience in the Psalms. The Psalms also give us an insight into heart condition. Why? The Gospels, for example, will tell us that Jesus was crucified, right? What do the Psalms now do? The Psalms tell us, number 22, what Jesus was thinking, what he felt while he was on the cross. The New Testament tells us that we should pray. What the Psalms now do is it tells us how we ought to pray using the precise and the exact words. And... The psalm spends the most of its time in adoration, meaning glorifying God, worshiping, praising Him, adoring Him. If you read a book or go to a seminar on how to pray, most of the time they'll focus on how you ask, how you petition. But what the psalms tell us, what constitutes the bulk of our prayer time, is adoration, worshiping and glorifying God. Now... There are many different types of psalms. There are wisdom psalms, there are lament psalms, there are acrostic psalms, there are royal psalms, there are thanksgiving psalms. But the one thing that I want to mention and not gloss over are what are called the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms. What does the word imprecatory mean? Imprecatory means someone actually prays to God for him to invoke wrath, for him to invoke calamity, or him to invoke curses on someone else or another group of people. And it's because most people gloss over this, I want to make sure we tackle this head on. Because here's what the imprecatory Psalms tell us. We serve a God who has now given us language. He's given us a blueprint that there are going to be situations in life that are not nice, that are unfair. And what the imprecatory Psalms now do is they actually give us a door where we can take all that frustration, all that anger, and do what? Bring it to God's doorstep. Because guess what? If, you're, if you serve a God who basically says, when you're frustrated and angry, pray to me like this, do you know what now is not going to happen? You are now not going to yell at someone else. You are now not going to take vengeance in your own hands because God has prescribed this is the way in which you channel those frustrations. Because if you put your angst at the door of a God who is righteous, who is true, who is holy and is just. You know whatever he decides to do is the right thing to do. But we can't trust ourselves to be agents of our own vengeance or to enact our own will in the world, which is why the impregatory Psalms aren't to be glossed over. They basically testify to the graciousness and the glory of God himself. Last thing I mention about the Psalms is this. Trivia question. What is the most quoted book in the New Testament? Most quoted book from the Old Testament in the New Testament. 
I hear whispering. Psalms, yes. Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. What is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? Psalm 110. This is God telling us Psalm 110 is really, really, really important. How does Psalm 110 open? It's, this is David speaking, the man who, whose heart's panted after God. David begins by saying, The Lord said to my Lord, stop, time out. Let's say this again. David says, the Lord says to my Lord. He's talking about two different persons, and he's calling them both Lord. The first Lord is in all capitals, meaning it's Yahweh, the covenantal God of Israel who said, told Moses, I am who I am. The second word is Lord, Adonai, which in Hebrew is the word for the master of the universe, the one who has supreme authority. So let's make sense of this. How could David say that his Lord, Yahweh, says to Adonai, sit at my right hand, which is the place of honor, which is the place of trust. Then David goes on to say that not only is this Lord a king that holds the scepter in his hand, he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Meaning, this is someone who has a distinct personage compared to Yahweh, who is a king and is a priest. Only God can sit at the right hand of God. All of this is to formalize the idea that right here in the New Testament, probably right next to Isaiah 53, this is a clear foreshadowing and pointing forward to the Messiah who is to come, who will ultimately have an eternal kingdom. So the most quoted book, in the New Testament from the Old is Psalms, and the most quoted Psalm is Psalm 110. And the reason why God is drawing attention to it is because it talks about Jesus. Proverbs. What's the big idea of the book of Proverbs? This one's simple. Proverbs. The big idea of the book of Proverbs is Proverbs. What is a proverb? It is a saying that conveys a specific truth in a pointed and concise way. Proverbs, therefore, are short sentences drawn from a long experience. Here's the thing we have to understand. Proverbs are not laws. They're not rules. They're general guidelines that give a generality of experience. So, when we read Proverbs 22.6, that says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Guess what? There are plenty of parents who train up a child in the way they should go. And what do those kids do? They depart. So this proverb isn't a hard and fast rule saying, if you do this, you will get this. It generally is saying that the way you raise up a responsible adult who will not forsake God is to train them up in the way that they should go, but there are exceptions to that rule. And the key to the Proverbs is Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. When the Bible uses the word fool, 
It's not talking about someone who is intellectually deficient. It's not talking about someone who has a low IQ. It's talking about someone who has the wrong assumptions about life. You could be a PhD in theoretical physics with an IQ of 250, but if you try to live life outside of God's instruction or outside of God's sovereignty, the Bible labels you a fool because you're trying to navigate life outside of the realm of life's architect and creator. And Solomon is the one who wrote the Proverbs, but guess what? Solomon wasn't as wise as the person the Proverbs were talking about. Even he didn't meet the bar or the standard that's depicted in the Proverbs. So what does this tell us? Whose wisdom is really in the Proverbs? Who actually lived a life that embodied all the truths and the maxims in the book? Jesus himself. Ecclesiastes. What's the big idea of the book of Ecclesiastes? One word. The big idea of the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity. Now, when I say vanity, I don't mean pride. I don't mean someone looking at themselves in the mirror saying, you look great today. When I say the big idea of Ecclesiastes is vanity, I mean futility, meaninglessness, purposelessness. Ecclesiastes shows us Solomon's folly. In Proverbs, Solomon wrote about wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he wrote about folly. And in the same way, in Job, God was saying, even Job, as good as he was, was still a sinner. What God is showing us in Ecclesiastes is that as wise as Solomon was, in, in uh, comparison to God, Solomon was a fool. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Solomon's point in Ecclesiastes is this. If you try to live a life, if you try to make sense of life apart from God, then all is vanity. All is futile. All is meaninglessness. Because here's the thing. If you read Ecclesiastes superficially you may get the impression it contradicts the rest of the Bible. Meaning, when you read the verse, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, wait a minute. Is Genesis vanity? No. Are the Psalms vanity? No. Is Malachi vanity? No. So what is Solomon saying? What he's saying is that he starts writing the book under the assumption he's trying to get the most out of life without God. And when he tries to do that, he then reaches the conclusion that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon makes two distinctions. He talks about life under the sun and under heaven. Under the sun means the natural world of human beings here on earth. Under heaven means the world in the context of God. And he basically says, if you live a life where your only focus is everything under the sun, it's all meaningless. People live, people die, they get married, they have babies, they work, they eat, they drink, they be merry, but Mother Teresa and Hitler all have the same fate. When you look at life just under the sun and not under heaven. And the reason why Ecclesiastes is so powerful is because it was written by Solomon. Who was Solomon? 
He had every natural desire a man could want. He had money, he had power, he had influence, he had prestige, he had women, he had real estate, he had everything. And that guy is now saying, when I look back on my life and consider life without God, all is vanity. That's why the biting uh, message of Ecclesiastes is so powerful. He even gives you real-life examples. He even says, he even makes the assumption, let's say you want to live life where you only seek pleasure, where the only thing you want to get satisfaction from is right here and now. You know what he says? He says, if you search for maximum pleasure and you don't find it, what happens? You get angry and frustrated. He says, if you do find it, you know what happens? After a while, you're going to get bored. Now you knew a new pleasure. Now you need a new kick. And after a while, after you run out of kicks, what happens? You now get bored because vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon therefore makes a conclusion that God is the ultimate meaning to our work, our pain, our joy, and our suffering. And life may seem cyclical from a human standpoint, but it obtains meaning from the one who stands outside of our reality, God himself. So therefore, nothing is futile under heaven, but under the sun, everything is meaningless. Last book, this is quick. Song of Solomon. Someone tell me, what's the big idea? Love. Very simple. What does Song of Solomon talk about? It talks about the intimate, consecrated, exclusive love between a man who is the beloved and the woman who is his love. It, it is the maximum intimacy, the, the height of spiritual, psychological, and biological connection between a man who all he desires in life is his wife and the woman who all she desires is his husband. On the surface, Song of Solomon tells the love tale between these two individuals. It gives us a wonderful picture of the exclusivity of marriage, of the covenant of marriage that God has ordained, and the sacredness of marriage itself, where there is maximal fulfillment and contentment of one another. What is this a picture of? It's basically a picture of the covenantal relationship between God and Israel, between Christ and the church, between Jesus and individual believers. All throughout the, New the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the bride of God, the bride of Yahweh. So you know why God gets upset when Israel disobeys? Because they're committing spiritual adultery. They're basically telling God, we don't like you, we don't get satisfaction in you, you are not good enough. And this points forward now to the relationship between Christ and the church, because Christ so loved the church that he died for them. And because Christ loves the church so much, he doesn't uh, love an impersonal institution, he loves all of those individuals who make up the church. So Song of Solomon also gives us a picture of the love that Christ has for the individual. Individual believer. 
The key verse will be in uh, Song of Solomon 2.16, which says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. God doesn't want lukewarm lovers because all of salvation is a love affair. What God did in the Bible doesn't make any sense. If you put it in, in a mathematical formula, none of it computes. But salvation ultimately is the love affair, is God pouring out of himself and doing, taking all of these steps toward us when he didn't have to because of love. And that's Song of Solomon. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.